Glad you're here with us to to worship this morning, and uh, if you're a guest this morning, thank you for taking the time to to get to know us. Um, let me uh, let you know we're actually in a in a bit of a series right now, and so let me just give you a very quick uh, review of where we are in that series before I read today's passage. We. Since January, we've been looking together at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and right now, we're kind of coming back to a section of verses in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul wrote about marriage, and so we're doing a little five-week series on marriage. And so, a couple of weeks ago, the first, uh, first time we talked about it, we talked about what the point of marriage is, which we said is, is really deep friendship, um, and it, marriage is a very intense form of friendship. And then last week, we saw that marriage is a binding personal covenant, a, a promise to love regardless of life circumstances. And this morning, I want us to consider marriage's power play. Um, so negatively, there's a power play that works in a marriage to prevent the two, husband and wife, from becoming one. But positively, Paul in this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, he lifts lifts us up to see a power for the two, male and female, husband and wife, to really become one. So let me uh, read for us, uh, not Matthew, uh, Ephesians chapter, if I can find it in my bulletin, chapter 5, verses, we're going to read verses 18 through 33. We've been reading the past few weeks, uh, verse 21 through 33, but I'm backing up a, a little bit, and I'll let you know why that is a little bit later. So let's follow along as we listen to God's holy and inerrant word. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior." Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him and ask for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for 
not leaving us in the dark, but for giving your word to us as a light for our path. Um, And we thank you for the ultimate light that your word draws us to see, which is Jesus himself. And so as we study your word this morning, uh, would you please help us to see Jesus? For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to start just a little bit differently this morning. And um, what I want to do for us is I want to read two excerpts from a husband and wife's journals, okay, their diaries. Uh, Both husband and wife here in in these journals, they're individually reflecting on on the very same day. And so, um, so let me read this. This is an excerpt from the, the wife's diary. She wrote this. Tonight I thought my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with my friends all day long. So I thought he was upset at the fact that I was a bit late. But he made no comment on it. Conversation wasn't flowing. So I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that it had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled silently and kept driving. I cannot explain his behavior. I don't know why he didn't say, I love you too. When we got home, I felt as if I had lost him completely, as if he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. He just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed. But I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I cried. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure that his thoughts are with someone else. My life is a disaster. Pretty serious disconnect, right? Uh, A painful, isolating betrayal that's felt, uh, loneliness. Um, Well, now listen to the husband's journal. It's considerably shorter. Um, (laughs) This is his reflection, right, which gives us insight into that painfully isolating disconnection that his wife felt. So on the same day, he only wrote one line. Here it is. My motorcycle won't start, and I can't figure out why. Um, so the motorcycle was, of course, the cause, uh, of the silent emotional disconnect. Um, you know, obviously a joke, uh, you can thank the internet for that one. Um, but men and women tend to process life differently, don't we? Uh, we all intuitively get that, which is why you laughed at that. Uh, you know, the battle cry um, for equality between the sexes, it has been sounded uh, for some time in our contemporary culture. And, and I do hope that 
we see the good in that, that uh, the Bible affirms. I mean, Genesis 1.27, male and female created in God's image. But often, I think, in our culture's effort to uphold equality, that distinctions are often blurred. And maleness and femaleness, femalenessness, is that a word? Um, are dismissed or they're lost in the conversation and in the discussion. So it's a, it's kind of equality uh, or unity by eliminating distinctions and eliminating differences. And the Bible's, the Bible's approach is entirely different from that. Um, you can't miss it when you read through Ephesians chapter 5. Paul didn't give husband and wife identical roles in the marriage. And yet at the same time, he's saying that only by embracing these distinctions and differences can there be unity. So that neither is diversity sacrificed for unity, nor is unity sacrificed for the maintenance of diversity. Uh, The biblical picture is in fact a unity that is through and in our diversity. And here's what I want us to consider this morning as we deal with the subject of gender and roles in marriage. Uh, I want to talk about three things. I want us to talk about the enemy of marriage, and then I want us to talk about the dance of marriage, and then finally I want us to talk about the power of and for marriage. Um, So let me just give you a little bit about where we're headed because I want you to understand that when we look at the enemy of marriage, what we're going to be saying is here's the problem we face in our marriages. And then when we talk about the dance of marriage, we're going to be talking about here's what it was meant to be. Uh, And then finally, when we consider the power of and for marriage, we want to be addressing, here's how we can get from here to what we were meant to be in our marriages as husbands and wives. All right, so first, the enemy of marriage and the problem we faced. Uh, Paul wrote about these differing roles here in Ephesians chapter 5, but I want you to please pay attention to how completely other-centered the roles are. I want you to notice the deference involved in those roles. So he's saying, wives, you are to defer. You're to die to yourself and give your husband the gift of respectful submission and follow his lead. But see, this isn't in any way opening the door for the husband to wield his authority oppressively, abusively, or, or selfishly. Because what Paul is saying here to the husbands is he's saying, husbands, defer. Right? Don't do anything without reference to serving and dying to yourself and sacrificially giving up your wants, your desires, even your rights. For your wife. There are distinctions in these roles to be sure. But what has to be clear. Is that God calls both husband and wife. 
to a complete other-centeredness in their relationships with one another. So, plainly spoken, the enemy of marriage then is our self-centeredness. Right? And not one of us, not one of our marriages is spared from this enemy because we're all born with our hearts curved in on themselves. And we've said this for a couple weeks now that, that marriage is really an intense form of friendship. And what all friendships, what all relationships end up doing is they end up poking and prodding and waking up the slumbering enemy within us all. Right? The enemy has always been there, but relationships, real deep relationships anyway, they come along and they expose and they aggravate our self-centeredness. Relationships, relationships demand give and take. So relationships confront our deep desire for the world and everyone in it to revolve around us. Now, here's the very simple, but I do think it's a profound point that we need to make here. The enemy of marriage is not our differences or, or, or our distinctions, but our self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is the cancer of relationships that takes normal and healthy things and twists those things and corrupts them and bends them to self. You think about those uh, diary entries that we read a moment ago. When we read that, you know, most of us thought it was funny, but for some of us, it became a little bit more than funny. What I mean is this. There were some men that started catching on to the truth and started extrapolating a little bit. Key, the eye roll. Um, yep, that's the problem right there, right? Women are always reading into, and they're making something out of nothing. And you pull on that thread a little bit more, and you extrapolate it a little bit more, and it gets much worse. Where people start saying, women, they are so weakly interdependent, and therefore inferior, And now it's become name-calling. But at the same exact time, some women started extrapolating too. And they started thinking, yep, that's the problem right there. Men are so isolating, they're so unaware, they're so unfeeling, and therefore inferior. One female author writes, And indeed, the gap between the sexes often looks like a chasm. We cannot understand each other. And since the default mode of the human heart is self-justification, where we cannot understand where we cannot understand the other sex, we assume inferiority. See, our self-centeredness is so twisted that we're always looking at the other and saying, "You're to blame for all my misery." And the unwelcome surprise of marriage is to find out that your spouse is thinking the exact same thing about you. Many of you, many of you here are in the medical profession, so please forgive my unsophisticated metaphor here, um, that self-centeredness 
is the cancer of relationships. But just like cancer can come in many different forms, so can our self-centeredness. And it gets expressed in all kinds of forms. And just like cancer comes along and corrupts and distorts healthy cells in your body, so does self-centeredness come along and distort and corrupt what God intends us to be. And just like cancer, self-centeredness will eat away and reap destruction in your marriage or relationship from the inside out. But unlike physical cancer, we're all infected with this cancer of self-centeredness. We're born with it. I can't remember if it was, I was trying to find it, I couldn't find it. I can't remember if this came from Brian Chappell's book on marriage or his commentary on these verses. But he wrote this, he wrote, Man's great temptation is to use the power of his position and physique to enforce dictatorial rule or to indulge passive self-absorption. A woman's comparable temptation is to use the power of words and emotions to diminish a husband's influence so that she has control of the home. He goes on, As often as a man will try to dominate a woman with strength, a woman will try to control a man with shame. He's speaking in, in generalities, of course, but the point is that at the heart of the sinful condition, of our sinful condition, is a radical self-centeredness. A self-centeredness that bends and twists and corrupts good things to assert control over another. And so that's the negative power play, the enemy of marriage, which will always prevent the two from becoming one. All right, second, let's talk about the dance of marriage. And here we're, we're talking about the positive power play here, about what it was meant, what marriage was meant to be in these relationships. What does it look like when a man and a woman live completely other-centered in their own unique roles? Think back to this verse from Genesis 1 that I referenced earlier, which was Genesis 1, 27. It says this, So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, Genesis 1. That's the macro, big, bird's eye view of creation. But when you get to Genesis 2, the author gives you more detail uh, into the creation of man and woman. And the detail that we find in Genesis chapter 2 is that God made Adam first. And only after Adam named the animals did he, bring, did he make Eve for Adam. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to get too far into it. But when God brought Eve to Adam, Adam burst into song, into poetry. He, he couldn't contain himself. He was so excited. He said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You remember that? Now, take those two together, and this is what you get. Male and female are both created in God's image, and you also get this wonderful sense of completion that comes in Genesis chapter 2. See, there's something about male and female that only when they come together do they reflect God's image in a way they can never do on their own. 
And I know this brings up a whole thing about singleness, which we're headed there in a couple of weeks. Um, And we're going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about how singleness isn't, therefore, some kind of substandard condition or state to live in, but even a gift. But in this point, I I am saying there's something complementary about maleness and femaleness. Femaleness, whatever that word is. So much so that the Bible is saying only together do they fully reflect God's image. I can't remember where I read or heard this. I know it's not unique to me. But if you take a piece of tinfoil, it has the ability to reflect your image back to you. But not perfectly. It's blurry and it's indistinct. And if you take a piece of glass, a pane of glass, it also has the ability to reflect your image back to you, but not perfectly. It's transparent. It's vague. But if you take a piece of foil and you put it behind a pane of glass, what do you get? A mirror, right? Which reflects your image crisply. And clearly and distinctly, what what I'm saying here, you need both, the glass and the foil, male and female. When Adam burst into joy and he said, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He was saying, you are me and yet you are not me. You are the same as me and yet you are different from me. He's saying, you are my completion, and you are what I was made for. The two come together to reflect God's image in a way they never could on their own. Now, when the Bible talks about the wife in Genesis as a helper fit for the man, I hope you understand that the Bible is not saying that the woman is something lesser than the man. If anything, it's saying Adam was deficient alone and by himself. He was lacking in and of himself. He was made for a counterpart to complete him. And vice versa for the woman. She was deficient by herself. She was made for a counterpart to complete her. Now now think about these distinct roles that Paul mentioned. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That's verses 22 and 23 from Ephesians chapter 5. And then he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, which is verse 25. There's this principle that Jesus talks about all over the places in the Gospels. And and it's this. The only way to find your life is to lose your life. That's the way of the gospel. And Paul was saying the wife will only truly find herself as she loses her life and defers and submits to her husband. And the husband will only truly find himself as he loses his life. And defers and sacrificially serves and loves his wife. For either husband or wife 
to abdicate these roles, you need to understand this. It's not just going to cut into and distort your marriage relationship. To abdicate either of these roles is going to cut into and tear into and distort your own humanity. We're talking about unity in diversity, which is far more beautiful, I hope you see, than sameness. I've never seen, I I know, I I watch a lot of terrible TV shows like American Idol I've talked about before, Um, but I've never seen an episode of Dancing with the Stars, but I've seen the commercials for it. Um, It may not even be a show anymore, I don't know, it's probably too old, but um, I want you to imagine, not necessarily that show, I I don't know why I got off into that. Um, Listen, I want you just to imagine a couple dancing beautifully with one another. You can imagine how in sync they are and how fluid their their movements are and they're intertwined and they're moving together so fluid that it's sometimes hard to tell where one stops and the other starts. But of course, they aren't doing the same exact thing, are they? Because one partner's step forward involves another partner's step back. And one partner's step to the left means a step to the right for the other partner. This whole submission and headship thing, love and respect thing, it is a dance of opposites even coming together in beautiful fluidity. That's the picture the Bible is giving. Or you think about music. Many voices singing in unison is fine. But it pales in comparison to the beauty and richness and depth and texture of harmony, of voices complementing one another. Let me give you three brief applications about this dance of marriage, and then we'll be on to our last point. One, this is a dance, which is not a dance of one-upmanship. But as Mike Mason writes, it is a contest in one-downmanship. A backwards tug of war between two wills, each equally determined not to win. Constantly looking for opportunities to defer, to submit, and to serve, to sacrificially love and serve. A contest in one downmanship. And that's what makes the dance beautiful. But second, in a dance, someone has to take the lead. When faced with a rare opportunity, and I do think most of the times it is rare, when a decision has to be made and agreement can't be reached, God says, let the husband lead. Husbands, when this happens, when this happens in a marriage, you will often desire to abdicate your role and turn to your wife and say, you just decide. And wives, when this happens, you will often desire to take the lead. Because listen, it is a fearful place for both of you to be. But God is saying when in this position the husband leads, he will be tapping into his humanity in a very deep way. And for the wife to submit, she will be tapping into her humanity In an incredibly deep way. In this dance, someone has to lead. And God has determined that it should be the sacrificial servant leadership of the husband. 
All right, third, it is necessary to be somewhat vague in respect to details when t- in respect to details when talking about this dance. We tend to want to read our experience of culture into these verses. Well, this is how this fits in a traditional conservative southern American family. And I'm telling you that is both bad and dangerous. And the reason is because Paul is grounding his argument in creation. Before there was an agrarian society, before there was medieval baggage, before the industrial revolution, before the technological age, this is far deeper and more profound than who works outside the home, who balances the budget, who keeps the home, whose paycheck is bigger. It's not, and it's not easy to figure out all the details of this beautiful dance, this radical, other-centered dance between husband and wife. But I do know this. It is only safe to figure out the steps of this dance inside of a covenant of marriage, inside a place of promised, till death do us part, love and commitment, which is what we talked about last week. All right. Finally, last, let's talk about the power of and for marriage. In other words, how do we get from here to there? From the cancer of self-centeredness to this beautiful other-centered dance of marriage. Um, Every week we've been looking at marriage. We put in the bulletin this passage from Ephesians chapter 5. And every week we've had Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 through 33. um, Which has felt a little bit odd to me every time I've got up to read it. Because we're starting in the middle of a sentence when we start in verse 21. We're starting with an ellipsis. Uh, This morning on your insert I included the whole Verse, uh, which actually began uh, the whole sentence, which began in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5. And here's why I put that there we cannot know what Paul is saying about marriage without understanding the context in which he writes. So stay with me here just for a moment. In ver- verse 18 reads, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to describe three things that happen when we are filled with the Spirit. One, addressing each other in psalms and hymns, making melody to the Lord, singing. Two, giving thanks always and for everything to God in the name of Jesus Christ. And three, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul was saying... When you are filled with the Spirit, you find the power to submit and to defer and to become other-centered in your relationships. So listen, when Paul began talking about marriage, he wasn't beginning a new thought. In fact, the controversial word, submit, in verse 22, isn't even there in the Greek. It makes the English reading a little bit easier, but it's actually in verse 21. Literally, the end of verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22 reads like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives as to your husbands. Stay with me just a little bit longer here. 
To be filled with the Spirit is for the Spirit to apply the work of Jesus' redemption to you. The Spirit's primary job is to make Jesus real to you. To make Jesus shine in the eyes of your heart. It's not just to believe in him intellectually and give an assent to that. But it's to experience his love. To experience how loved you already are in Jesus. So let me say it like this. To be filled with the Spirit is to have the gospel rise like the sun on your cold, icy, curved-in, self-centered heart. And when the sun comes up, And it casts its rays on your heart. The ice in your heart begins to crack and break up and melt. And that's when you find freedom to submit to one another out of your love for Jesus. Husband and wife in the gospel then find the freedom to defer to one another. So right now, probably thinking... What does that really mean in day-to-day life that we're set free to do this? Let me give you a few things here. Because of the gospel, because of Jesus, you are now free in marriage and really in all of your relationships to now see your self-centeredness as the biggest issue. Right? You're free to stop pointing the finger at your spouse Because you see, that's exactly what our self-centeredness does. It makes you, as one author puts it, hypersensitive to your spouse's self-centeredness and simultaneously blind to your own. But when the gospel rises like the sun upon you, you're finally free to admit your self-centeredness with no fear of shame or condemnation. And if two people are doing that simultaneously... A dance is going to follow. All right, this also sets you free from demanding too much from your spouse or too much from your marriage. It would take way too much time to quote, but C.S. Lewis brilliantly talks about how he thinks it's extremely rare, he even calls it ridiculous, to think that anyone is ever really tempted in this life to idolize one's own spouse. But, he says... We idolize marriage and romantic love all the time. To experience the gospel is to be set free from demanding that your marriage meets all of your needs and fulfills all the hopes and dreams you had for your marriage. Free from demanding that your marriage be the ultimate source of fulfillment and satisfaction in your life. You get free of that. When you find your fulfillment and your satisfaction in what Jesus has done and accomplished for you. It also sets you free to forgive your spouse. right? To realize that sin has not only bent and broken your own heart, but has also twisted and broken your spouse's heart. And you become free to reflect the grace that you've received in Jesus to your spouse. It also sets you free from being judgmental towards your spouse. Free to stop extrapolating every little thing and demonizing your spouse and dissecting all of your spouse's motivations. Free to even embrace right, and affirm the differences instead of judging the differences that you see in your spouse. It also sets you free to speak the truth and love to one another. 
Because to just speak to one another in love and gloss over or ignore sin and brokenness, you know that's way too superficial, right? And it rightly feels dishonest. But to just speak the truth abrasively is far too brutal and too hard. That Jesus saw the truth of you in your sins and lovingly came to die for you frees you to speak the truth and love to one another. The gospel also frees you to be humble because it crucifies your pride. You are so wicked that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could atone for your sin. And that creates humility. But the gospel also frees you to be joyously confident because the Son of God willingly and voluntarily was pleased to give up his life for you. And that should affirm you down to the very core of your being. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to make, and we're getting ready to to end this. Um, But it's this. The gospel is the power of and for marriage. It's the gospel that sets you free to be what God made you to be. And it's when you see Jesus, Jesus himself deferring for you, that you find the freedom to defer for others. When you see his love for you, you begin to find a freedom from feeling like you have to get control and you have to get the upper hand. And when you see his love for you, you find the freedom from needing to be needed in your relationships. And you can, and you can yourse- give yourself to relationships not to get something in return for it, but simply out of reverence for Christ, as Paul writes. So here's what I want to leave you with for this week. Paul famously wrote in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But what? But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He didn't grasp at his rights. But he became a servant, a servant obedient, even obedient to death. And he did that for you. Jesus himself said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and give his life for you. And as the author of Hebrews wrote, you were the joy that was set before him, that called him to endure the cross scorning its shame, despising its shame. And I want to ask you as we end this morning, has the good news risen like the sun and cast its rays upon you? If it has, then you need to lean into his love and, in, and into the freedom that you now have to defer and to die to yourself and serve one another in the unique roles that God has given you and placed before you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we um, were humbled when we read your word because we look at it and we realize how far we are from what you made us to be. And yet, at the same time, we are led to see Jesus, who is our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate hope, our deepest satisfaction. 
And we are led to see how he has come and he has set us free from the power of sin and death in order that we might freely submit to one another out of reverence for him. Father, would you help us to be what you have called us and created us to be in Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.